I am a man on a mission this evening because I got a lot of ground to cover. So open up your Bibles, the book of Daniel. Open up the book of Daniel. We need to cover some ground this evening, and we're going to pick up in just a minute in chapter 6. I'll give you a very rapid kind of relay, a recap. We're in the book of Daniel. This little slide reminds you one of the big parts of Daniel is Daniel in the lion's den. We're covering that this evening. The outline we gave you for the book of Daniel is a simple one. Daniel's experiences, the first half of the book, second half of the book, Daniel's visions. And we're quickly getting into the second half tonight. Under Daniel's experiences, here are the things we covered. His arrival and his establishment in Babylon. We covered Nebuchadnezzar's first dream. Remember, that was a dream about the statue with, made out of four different types of metal from head to, to toe. And we covered that. We covered his... Uh, golden image. He sets up the golden image, and then that leads three Hebrew children to get thrown in the fiery furnace. We've covered that. We covered his second dream, and then his humiliation. Remember, he ends up, because of his pride, he winds up becoming animalistic, like a beast in the field, hair really, really long, nails really long, thinking like an animal, sleeping outside in the grass. He just lost it for about seven years. And then he comes back. And then we talked about the writing on the wall. And uh, tonight we finish up Daniel's experiences with the lion's den story. So go to there, chapter 6. Now, in the lion's den story, we are no longer under the rule of Babylon. We're under the rule of the Medes and Persians. And uh, so in this story, Darius the Mede is now in control of Babylon. And he's in control not just of Babylon, but all the nations that Babylon used to be in control of. And so he sets up a new structure and new officials. So look at chapter 6 and starting in verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished among all the other high officials and satraps because of his, an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Okay, so Darius is now in control of Babylon. He sets up a whole new system of government. He sets up three officials under him, and then under them are 120 lower officials, if you will, over all the providences. And Daniel, out of the three that's under the king Darius, Daniel rises to the top, rises to the top. And it says really plain that the king plans to make Daniel the chief official. Uh, Now, we don't know for sure what it means when it says an excellent spirit was found in him. I mean, it doesn't tell us specifically. It could have been teach, uh, talking about his character. It could have been referring to his wisdom. Uh, it could have been referring to his spiritual relationship with God, uh, which has everything to do with all the others. We don't know. But the Hebrew word, which would mean exceedingly, extraordinarily, exceptional, surpassing, uh, would I just think it's interesting this phrase that uh, 
because he had an excellent spirit within him. I wonder if people would say that about me or about you. That's somebody with an excellent spirit in them. You know, this exceeding, this extraordinary spirit, this spirit that overflows, this spirit that goes above and beyond, this, this spirit that's just extraordinary. I think that's something we, we should be mindful of. I think it's, we too quickly settle for just okay. I'm just okay. I'm okay. You know, we settle for mediocrity, and I don't think God's children should ever settle for mediocrity. Okay, the reason all this is important, the reason this structure is important, the three officials under the king and then 120 satraps under him, the reason this is important is it sets the scene for what's to come. So look at the next verses, verses 4 and 5. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the laws of his God. Why were they wanting to get Daniel? Hmm? Jealous, absolutely. You saw right back here in verse 3, this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because of his excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. If you're one of the king's officials and you find out the king is planning to set this, basically this slave over you, that's going to get your goat, you know, and... It did. And so they're plotting for that. But even they couldn't find, legitimately, they couldn't find anything wrong with Daniel. Again, I've told you, Daniel and possibly Joseph are the two people in the kingdom, in, in the scripture, in, in the story of God that you can't hardly find anything bad about. And so they're jealous. And, and how do those words about Daniel challenge us? When you listen to those words about Daniel, they have about Daniel, shouldn't they challenge us to not have anything bad said about us? Shouldn't they challenge us to outperform everyone? Shouldn't they challenge us to be a cut above everybody and everything? Shouldn't they challenge us to, to serve in, an, in a manner of excellence that is like unto the Lord? Because Scripture says that we are to, to work and to serve as unto the Lord. And again, I, I'm just afraid that we've settled for less than that. Listen to Colossians 3, 23 and 24. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that, the Lord of the, that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. So this was Daniel. Daniel's exhibiting this for us. He's serving in such a manner that nothing can be said about him that's bad. And, and he's serving in an, ex, even serving a pagan king, he serves in such an excellent way that this pagan king wants to make him ruler someday. That's a high bar that Daniel sets for us. Okay, so what do the officials do? Look at chapter 6, look at verses 6 through 9. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement, so they had colluded together. They had joined together and said, here's what we're going to do. Came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, 
live forever. Now, they're going to work the king here, all right? You know, you, you, they're going to massage the king's ego and get him tapped up for this. All of the high officials of the kingdom and prefects and satraps and the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. And therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. So they go to the king and they basically say, you know what, we think, this is we think you should do this. I mean, you're such a great king anyway that you should pass an ordinance that says for this amount of time, no one can make petition to any god or any man except to you. Well, that's going to puff him up a little bit. And then they want him not to just make, they want him to make an official decree because for, with the, the law of the Medes and the Persians was that any edict that an official that the king of the Medes or the Persians made could not be revoked, not even by themselves. So if Darius makes this law and they write it and he stamps it with a signet ring and it becomes law, he can't even revoke it. Now they know he likes Daniel because they already know he's planning on making Daniel top dog. So they know that they have to get this in writing so that if he decides to waffle, he can't. And so they played to his, his ego, and he does this. It's amazing how well they did that. Now, note the injunction is just 30 days. Why didn't they ask for it to be permanent? Didn't need to. Didn't need to. Why not? Yeah, they know Daniel's not going to go a day without praying, let alone 30 days. So it, they don't have to make this permanent. That's, again, that's a pretty big testimony to Daniel. That we know Daniel's going to be faithful, so it's not going to take long for him to violate this edict. And so they just ask for 30 days. And remember that, that there were many different cultures. Remember, Babylon had, had captured and exiled and brought in multi-cultures into Babylon. So... You don't want to set a law like this for too long because then everybody's going to get disgruntled. You know, they, they were about being homogenous. Let's just bring everything into a big pot and we'll just kind of make it all fit together. And so if the majority of the people in your city are exiles and they get really disgruntled, you have the same thing that Pharaoh had on his hands in the Exodus. So 30 days is enough. That's all they need is 30 days. So look at Daniel's response. Look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went into his house where he had windows in his upper chamber opened toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. What's the big deal about the windows? What's the big deal about him getting down on his knees? He's facing Jerusalem. And what's the deal with the windows? Hmm? People could see in. I mean, let's be honest. How many of us would be thinking, okay, I can still stay faithful to God and still pray to him. I just have to do this in this closet where no one can see. 
you know? So this tells you something about Daniel. He's not fudging any. He's going to keep this, and he's going to do it in such a way that everybody can see him. All right. Now, the officials who plotted against Daniel, they spring the trap now. Now, look at verse 11. They spring the trap. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petitions and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that, listen to it, that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then he answered and said before the king, then they answered and said before the king, Daniel. I mean, they get him to to affirm first. They get him to say, absolutely, can't change it. This is the way it's going to be. Then they tell him, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, not one of the officials, not one of your officials, one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have have signed. But this makes his petition, but makes his petition three times a day. Okay, now he's, listen to how they're painting Daniel. He's the exile. He pays no attention to you. Well, you know that that's not true in the sense because if he didn't pay any attention to the king, the king wouldn't have plans to make him first in charge. So they're really playing on just this one act and they're really building it up a lot. Verse 14 Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored until the sun went down to rescue him. He's trying to figure, find a loophole. This is how much the king loves Daniel. He's trying, already trying to find a loophole to get Daniel out of this. Verse 15. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is law, the law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king established can be changed. So they know he's trying to figure a loophole. And they come back and they remind him, hey, you can't get out of this. You've got to follow through with this. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the lion's den. So let me get, let's just go on. We'll read a little bit more. He's cast into the lion's den. The king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, with the signet of his lords, that nothing can be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace, and he spent the night fasting. Interesting. The pagan king spends the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, which kind of is code word for no women were brought to him. And sleep fled from him. He was upset. This is how much he thinks of Daniel. This is how much he loves Daniel. And he was upset. What do you find interesting about King Darius' response? Hmm? What do you find interesting about it? He had some guilt, I guess. Or he had some yeah. Yeah, he's probably kicking himself because he did that. What else do you think is interesting about him? Yes. He also seems to have some, at least some belief that Daniel's God could work. Yes. 
Yes, yes. And isn't that interesting? The guy who's over, who rules over all the known world, so to speak, says, I can't do anything about it. But now it's in a position where the only person that can is God, which sounds kind of by script, doesn't it? Anyone else find anything interesting? Never forget that we're talking about Darius, a pagan royalty, and Daniel, a Hebrew slave. Never forget that juxtaposition. Uh, that's really important. All of a sudden, what's going to happen to a Hebrew slave is unnerving a pagan king. That's, that's just good cinema right there. I'm just telling you. you know, God is a great storyteller. He sets this up really, really well. Okay. Let's look at the outcome. Start in verse 19. Then, at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the lion's den. He didn't sleep all night. He's waiting for first daylight so that he can go and check on Daniel. And he came near the den where Daniel was, and he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, that's a key word, continually, that's what got him in there to start with, has he been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. Isn't it interesting that he didn't lash back? He didn't say, okay, you put me in here, but look, I did just fine. You know, he didn't do that. He shows honor to the king. He knew the king was put there in a bad spot. He knew that king didn't want to do this. He shows honor to the king. Verse 22, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have done no harm. Verse 23, then the king was exceedingly glad and he commanded that Daniel be taken out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no harm was found on him because he had trusted his God. And the king commanded that those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the lion's den. They and their children and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all of their bones in pieces. Yes, woo, exactly. Exactly. Did you notice that the king's edict said nothing about throwing anybody else in the lion's den for anything you want to do? He's king. He can do this. And uh, how many of you twinged when it said that not only were these men thrown in, but their wives and their children too? Does that make you a little uncomfortable? Show of hands, how many's uncomfortable with that? Yes, thank you. I knew I couldn't be the only one. That was their custom. What's that tell us? Yes. 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 Yes.
Mm -hmm. The babies. Great, thank you. Thank you very much. Woo. Yes, you do see God do the same thing in the Old Testament. If I remember right, when Moses comes down off Mount Sinai and they're worshiping the golden calf, uh, if I remember right, women and children got involved in that slaughter too. But, yes. Yep. Yes, this is the God. These are the same people. He said that were worshiping Molech, which, which uh, part of worshiping Molech was child sacrifice. Here's what it tells me, that when I sin, I'm not the only one I'm hurting. When I sin, I am not the only one that gets the after effects of that. Other people do too. You know, when I was a teenager, I said one of those, those stupid things that you kind of cringe when you think back on and think, I really said that. And uh, I remember getting in a fight with my dad about something, and something I did something he didn't like. And the comment was, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, what difference does it make? Heard that before? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can't do stupid stuff, let alone sin, and not affect somebody else. You just can't. There's this symbiotic relationship, and it just happens, you know. And uh, I see that in the counseling office. I see this everywhere. You just can't do that. It's going to affect people. And so when these people sin and go against God, other people go along for the ride. That's basically how it works. When we sin, other people are going to go along the ride with us. And so, yes, it's harsh, but it's kind of like you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. All right, verse 25 through 28. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, languages and that dwelt in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever, and his kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to no end. And he delivers, and he rescues, and he works signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. And he who has saved Daniel, he has, who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. That's the outcome. Now, let me ask you something. Could we have gotten to that outcome without a lion's den? You think we could have gotten there without a lion's den? Okay. Why, why do you think that? 
Yes. Yes. And, and I agree. God has many ways he can do things. He can do things however he wants to. But when I look in Scripture, here's what I find. Isaac becomes the chosen one after Abraham's told to sacrifice him. The children of Israel get out of Egypt only by taking the risk of going through the Red Sea. David becomes this wonderful king, but only after he has to face Goliath and only after he has to be on the run from King Saul. Do you, do you see the pattern? The pattern is it's usually going through the difficult things that brings us to where God wants us to be and makes us who God wants us to be. But if you're like me, what do we try to do with the difficult things? Make them go away. <laughs> right? Avoid the difficult things. Control stuff so it doesn't happen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet it's those things that get us where we need to be. That's exactly why I don't look like Lane Lowry. I don't want to sweat and hurt and go down in the weight room and work out. <laughs> that doesn't sound fun to me at all. Consequently, I look like this. <laughs> Lane Lowry looks like he stepped out of some kind of muscle magazine. Why? Because he's willing to go through the hard work. And I, I see God do this over and over and over again. Jesus becomes victorious over death. But the only way he can become victorious over death is he has to die. And so, uh, it's not to say all of us should run into the face of danger right now. But I think we should ask ourselves, is this difficult thing something I really need to avoid? Or is this difficult thing something God's trying to use in my life to teach me and change me and grow me? All right, that is the end of Daniel's experiences. That's kind of the end of the history portion of Daniel, if you will. Now we get into Daniel's visions. Daniel's visions. Look at the first part of verse 1 of chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Okay, this is when the setting comes. Now, there's a couple of things I need you to know about this. First of all, the timeline is jumbled. The story we just finished reading about the, the uh, lion's den... Who was king at that time? Darius. He was Darius the Mede, of the Medes and Persians who conquered Babylon. Who is Belshazzar in chapter one of verse seven, or chapter seven of verse one? Who's Belshazzar? Grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. So he's Babylonian. So what happened? The timeline got switched on us. I've told you this before. The Hebrews were not as particular about keeping everything in exact order as we are. So we've heard this story during the, king of the, during the reign of the Medes and Persians. Now we're back to the reign of Babylon with this story that we're getting ready to read. That's the first thing I want you to know. The second thing I want you to know is I lied to you last week. Very unintentionally, but I did lie to you last week. Because uh, I told you Belshazzar was the son of Nebuchadnezzar, and that is not true. After some further study and looking into things, he's like the great, great, great grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. There are, there's Nebuchadnezzar, 
And then there's two others. And the third one was Nabonidus. And that was the father of Belshazzar. And what happened was Nabonidus went out of town for a few years. And so his son, Belshazzar, served as a co-regent. Wasn't really the king, but he served as a co-regent, as a co-ruler, if you will, over Babylon while his father was out. Now, here's why this is so important that probably none of you need to know or will never encounter at all. But just in case, uh, a lot of people will use the fact that, uh, that Scripture refers to Belshazzar as the king of Babylon as a way of saying, see, right there, that's why you can't trust Scripture because he wasn't the king of Babylon. Nabonidus was. The difference is they were co-rulers. He was given the rule and the reign of Babylon while Nabonidus was out of town. So, he, in fact, he is king. He's kind of a co-king. So, I don't know why I brought that up. You don't need to know that probably, but just wanted you to know that I had lied to you, and so I can come clean and I can sleep well at night. So, All right, now that we've got all that away, out of the way, let's keep reading. Daniel, now, here's the interesting thing. Now it's not other people having the dreams and Daniel interpreting them. Now, from here on out, it's Daniel having the dreams and him needing someone to interpret them. Puts Daniel in a completely different light, doesn't it? Uh, let's look at his first dream. One of his first dreams, he, he has this dream of a lion and a bear and a leopard and some other kind of beast. So look at chapter 7, start with verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And then he wrote them down and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Uh, a lot of times in Scripture when it refers to great sea, especially if we're talking more in visions and stuff, it, it really refers to people, like a sea of people if you will. So these four winds stir up the great sea and four great beasts come out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and had been lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard. Notice it just keeps saying, like. This is very much akin to Ezekiel's type of stuff, where Ezekiel sees things, and there's not really words exactly to describe it, so he's doing the best he can. And so that's why he's using these terms, like, it's like this, it looked like this. It's not that it was that, it's just the only words he can come up with. So verse 6, after this, I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and the dominion was given to it. And after this, so he's seeing them one at a time in succession, in the night visions, and behold a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth and it devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns and, it and I considered the horns and behold, there came up from them another horn, a little one, 
and before which of the three of the first horns were plucked up by their roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man and a mouth speaking great things. Okay, you explain it. I have wrestled with Daniel all day today. This is tough stuff. This is Ezekiel kind of stuff. Now, here's, here's what I can tell you. This vision is along the same lines as the first vision that Nebuchadnezzar had. Remember when he has this dream and he dreams of this statue and it's divided into four pieces and each one is a kingdom. In, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the head of the statue was Babylon. The torso was the Medes and the Persians. The, the waist and the thighs was the Grecian Empire and everything else was the Roman Empire. This is the same deal. It's a different take on the same thing. Uh, finally, there's a kingdom that triumphs over all of these. You can see that in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days, this is referring to God, the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. His hair, the hair of his head was like pure wool, his throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire, and a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And thousands, a thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. This is very much a judgment scene. All the fire, the throne, the books being opened. It's a judgment scene. And then I looked. And I looked then because the sound of the great words of the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So this basically is giving us the idea that out of all these earthly kingdoms, there is a kingdom that's going to destroy and overthrow and rule over all these earthly kingdoms. Keep going. Verse 13. I saw in the night version, and behold, with clouds of heaven there came a son of man. And he came with the ancient, came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. The dominion is everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What's this remind you of? Hmm? Christ. A lot of this sounds very similar to the book of Revelation, doesn't it? Yeah. So, so Daniel has this vision about these four beasts, which are these four kingdoms. And notice in, in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, it's, very, it's, it's relatively placid. I mean, it's just a statue. It's just standing there. It's not doing anything. But in Daniel's vision, it's not a statue. It's not parts of it. It's beast. It's a ravenous, vicious, roaring beast. And, and then there is one kingdom that basically comes in and trumps all of them. And then not only is there a kingdom that trumps all of them, but rule is given to one called the Son of Man by the Ancient of Days. This is very much kind of an end times look at things. Now, and, and you, we won't go over and finish the rest of the chapter. Basically, 
it's just describing this vision. It's, it's giving you some detail on the vision. Look at though chapter 7 and verse 28. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. This rocked Daniel. This vision rocked Daniel. And uh, we're going to see why here in just a little bit, but it really did get him. Now, in chapter 8, there's this vision of the coming kingdoms is explained to Daniel on slightly more of a granular level. And it's going to talk about the kingdom of the Medes and Persians, and it's going to talk about the kingdom of the Grecians, and it's going to talk some about the really angry kingdom that comes after that. Um, now, what it does is it uses the image of a ram for the Medes and Persians, and then the image of a goat for the Grecian Empire. And uh, like I said, these rock Daniel greatly. And, and then he's reading in the book of Jeremiah. And he sees in the book of Jeremiah that Jeremiah prophesies that the exile will last 70 years. And Daniel knew that the 70 years was closely coming to an end. So he turns and prays to God. Go to chapter 9. In chapter 9, Daniel prays to God about this. Start in verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer. And Well, let me back up. Let's back up to verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of the years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So he's saying, I was looking in the book of Daniel. I see that our exile and, and the ruin of Jerusalem should be over in 70 years. So verse 3, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, Now here's Daniel's prayer. Starts off this way, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenants and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So he starts off by acknowledging who God is. Then verse 5, we have sinned. And he goes on to confess his sin, the sin of his people. We have sinned. And if you'll notice, we won't read through all of it, but it, that confession goes from verse 5 all the way down to verse 15. The majority of Daniel's prayer is confessing his sin and the sin of his people. Verse 6, we have not listened to you. Verse 5, we have sinned. Uh, verse 8, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. Uh, verse 11, the curse and oath that were written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us. Back in, down in verse 13, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by truth. He's confessing his sin. And then, only when he gets to verse 16 does he start asking. This is not the way my prayers typically go. I usually start at verse 16 and start asking. You know? And then, just to throw some legitimacy in there so God knows I really love him, then I'll start talking about how good he is because I want him to answer my prayer, right? And then, if I get around to it, I may confess my sin. This is totally different. This is a great kind of 
model, if you will, for our prayers. Verse 16, O Lord, according to your righteousness acts, let your anger and your wrath be turned away from your city, Jerusalem. Verse 17, now therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon us. So this is Daniel's prayer. This is, this, he's had these dreams. They disturb him. He, he knows what the dreams are about. He knows that 70 years is coming to an end. He's just praying that God put us back on the right track. Help us to do what you want us to do. And in response to Daniel's prayer, God dispenses the angel Gabriel to explain the 70 weeks. I'm kind of getting behind on my stuff here. We talked about the lion and the bear, okay? Talked about the ram and the goat. We talked about Daniel's prayer. And then they send Gabriel to explain this idea of 70 weeks. These are deep weeds, okay? And this is probably about as far as I'm going to get this evening. Because these are really deep weeds. In response to that prayer, here's what happens. Read verse 23. Here's what Gabriel tells him. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression and to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring the in everlasting righteousness, to seal both the vision and the prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Seventy weeks. Now, this is difficult scripture, and you can, Bible scholars don't agree on this. They're all over the map on this. They usually fall into one of three camps, but they're all over the map on this. Uh, the 70 weeks passage is interpreted in many different ways. Some interpret it that it refers to the, the history of the time, Antiochus. Some believe that it refers to him, Antiochus. Yeah, Antiochus. Uh, some believe that it refers to the time of Jesus, his first and second return. And some believe that it's just way out there, future end times kind of thing. And there are rationale for all of these beliefs. I am, I am not, not going to tell you what I think the right interpretation of the 70 weeks is. But here's what I am going to do. I am going to find my place. That's what I'm going to do. That's what happens. My brain gets ahead of my mouth, and then I just can't do anything. Here's what I'm going to do. First of all, let's, let's look at verse 24. Let's, let's look at uh, verse 25. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then, for 62 weeks, it shall be built again, and the squares and the moats, but in a troubled time. Verse 26, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing, and the people and the princes who, come, who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there will be, shall be war. And desolation shall be decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half a week. 
And we shall put, and he shall put to an end the sacrifice and the offerings, and on the wings of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decree end is poured out on the desolator. Not easy stuff. Here's the first thing that you need to understand. Let's see if we can try to make a little sense of it. God sends the angel Gabriel to give Daniel some understanding. Daniel basically is looking at the book of Jeremiah, and he's saying, okay, Jeremiah says this is all going to be over in 70 years. So at the end of 70 years, we're going to go back home. We're going to rebuild Jerusalem. We're going to have a king again. Uh, God's going to put all that back together. God sends Gabriel to say, whoa, whoa, hold on, cowboy. There's more you need to understand here. And Gabriel says, it's not 70 years, it's 70 weeks. Now, the term for weeks means seven. So it's 70 sevens. 70 sevens of what? We don't know. Okay? We don't know. But there are 70 sevens. Most people will tell you and most people believe that a week is just like our week is seven days. The week talked about here is seven years. So 77s would be 77-year periods, all right? Uh, now, the purpose of this study is to do an overview and not to get so bogged down in this. But let me just show you how one view of these 77s work. Seven weeks, 49 years, is the time between the king of Persia's decree to return to Jerusalem and build it and the end of Malachi, the Old Testament, Seven weeks, so that'd be 49 years, okay? So they've been in captivity 70 years. 70 years is over. There are seven weeks before you get to the end of the Old Testament, the end of Malachi, where, where the people basically have Jerusalem back, all right? And then the 62 weeks you read about down here in uh, verse 25 and 26, the 62 weeks which is 62 times 7, which is 434 years. Those of you that are following along with the math, 434 years is the time between the beginning of the intertestamental period and the time when Jesus triumphantly enters into Jerusalem, his triumphant entry. Then some scholars believe that there is this time of the church which doesn't really count. But there's one more. If you've been doing the math, 49 plus 434 comes up to how many years? 483. So, but there's one more week. And they believe that week starts from the rapture to the time God comes back for, for good. And it even talks up here about this one week and half a week, which would be seven years and three and a half years. So they're splitting that last week up into halves, three and a half years and another three and a half years. So I'm not going to tell you what's right. It makes my head hurt to think about these things. Um, but know that Daniel's getting a glimpse of something that that he didn't understand either. And here's the deal. No matter how the 77s shake out, no matter how they shake out, here's what they tell us. That God has a definite plan. 
And he's implementing this definite plan without our help and without our intervention and without us messing it up. He is implementing this definite plan despite what our world does. Now, that can give you great discomfort or great comfort, one of the two. But when I watch the news, this gives me great comfort. This gives me great comfort. When I hear people speaking at the UN, this gives me great comfort. That God is going to carry out his already defined specific plan for mankind despite what we do. You know, if anywhere in here should have got an amen, that should have been that place right there. That should, I'm, I'm going to get an amen sign. I'm just going to hold it up. You know, like an applause sign. We're just going to do that. All right. All right. Uh, Hmm. <laughs> yeah, we're going to do this. Okay. After that account, Daniel has this encounter with this terrifying messenger. I mean, this messenger from God comes, and it just wigs him completely out. He falls down. He can't speak. Uh, he's shaken by all that God has revealed to him. And so he's been fasting and praying for three weeks. And at the end of the three weeks, God sends this messenger, probably Gabriel, to further explain what God has been showing him. And Daniel's terrified at the sight. He, he doesn't know what to do. He falls on the ground. He's dumbstruck with fear. And the messenger assures him that he has nothing to fear. And he strengthens him multiple times. Look at chapter 10. Look at verse 12 of chapter 10. Here's what the messenger says to him. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, three weeks. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I have left there with the kings of, and have left him there. Or, excuse me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. All right, so, so as this encounter with this guy and, 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 and this messenger of God, and the messenger of God says, you know, from the first time you started to pray 21 days ago, well, that's when he started fasting, when he started praying. He said, from that day... I heard your words. Your words were heard, and I came. But he says, basically, I was held up. I was held up. Now, it says he was held up by the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now, the word prince actually means a representative. And this brings in this whole idea of kind of territorial guardian angels, if, angels, if you will, or territorial spirit beings. And I'm, I'm not going to get that much into it. That's where this comes from, though, is from the book of Daniel. And basically... Gabriel's saying, I was on my way the second you started praying, and I had to encounter this prince of Persia and actually had to call in reinforcements to come and help me so I could get free and bring you this message. What does that tell you? Yes. And, and you guys know me. I'm not one of those guys that sees some spirit demon behind every rock. I'm just not one of those guys. Uh, 
But this passage reminds me that there's more going on than we can see. Scripture says, New Testament, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. Don't assume everything that you see is all flesh and blood. Now, when your spouse messes up and says, yes, those genes do make you look fat, I probably wouldn't blame that on anyone but him, right? But there are other times in life when your spouse is acting in ways you don't understand and you're ready to lay your hands on them and heal them. Uh, Remember that this is not just, not just for flesh and blood. There's lots of things going on and and lots of things happening that we don't know. So, So this happens... Then chapter 11, we, we given, we're given an account about the succession of kings from transition from Persian rule to, to Grecian rule. We're going to kind of skim over that. Then in the final chapter of the book of Daniel, we have this brief account of the end times, which began at the latter, chap, latter part of chapter 11. And I'm just going to read a quick passage for you, chapter 12, starting in verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael the great prince who is in, has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. Talking about what we refer to as the tribulation. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, and everyone whose name is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting con- contempt." As for those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky, and those who turn many to righteousness shall the stars uh, shall shine like stars forever. Okay, but then he says, but you, Daniel, shut up these words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So it's, it's, it's an end times prophecy, if you will. Uh, but Daniel is given an assurance Look at verse 13. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Now, we know Daniel died. But God says, hey, rest, because in that end day, you're going to stand in your place. Each of us will stand in our place. All right, I've got three minutes. I'm going to give you six takeaways, which means... Listen fast. That's what this means. And we'll finish up the book of Daniel tonight. Here's the takeaways that I've got. You, you will have a lot of other takeaways, but here's the takeaways I have from the book of Daniel. God honors, I'll show them to you. My mouth overran my screens again. Imagine that. All right, takeaways. Here's the first one. There it is. God honors a life of integrity and commitment to him. So one thing you know about Daniel throughout this book. He was a man of integrity, man who kept his commitments, uh, even if it was difficult, even if it was life-threatening. And God honored that all through the book. And God will continue to honor that. He will continue to honor a life of integrity and commitment to him. It won't be easy. It wasn't always easy for Daniel. But God honored him for it. Second takeaway. More often than not, You can honor Christ and your Christian principles 
without being offensive and rude. Maybe all the time, not just more often than not, but all the time. We don't have to be odd for God. You know, we don't, to stand for Christ and stand for our principles don't mean, doesn't mean we have to be jerks about it. We can do this in a way that even people who don't know Christ see something, hear something, feel honor, give honor back. Won't always work the way we want it to. But, but we have become two caricatures in culture. And it's like, if you don't believe what we believe, there's something wrong with you and you should just be out of here. I find it interesting that God never, uh, Daniel never prayed to God to remove the pagan king. Daniel worked with him as best he could. But we as believers want to say, this is wrong and it should be gone and, and, and you should not think that way. And if you think that way, there's something wrong with you. And we go on and on like that. This is not how Daniel operated. So, more often than not, if not all the time, you can honor Christ and your Christian principles without, without being mean and offensive or rude or odd. Third takeaway. Our faith should be in God, in the God of our circumstances, not the outcome of our circumstances. Our faith should be in the God of our circumstances, not the outcome of our circumstances. Because if it doesn't go the way you want it to be, then you've just lost your faith in God too. But if you know God's character is true and right, no matter what the circumstances are, you cling to him, not the outcome. We talked about, a lot about that with Fiery Furnace. One more, two more takeaways. God answers prayer immediately. He does not necessarily answer it the way you want him to, but he answers it immediately. We just read, Gabriel said twice it was told to Daniel, the minute you started praying, I was on my way. The minute you start praying to God, he answers. It may, be, it may not be as quick as you want. It may not be what you want, but he answers. All right, one more thing. Last takeaway, I think. No, one more. God is complete control of every kingdom, every government on earth. He's in complete control of every kingdom and every government on earth. He is the one who established them, and he's the one who will dismantle them. Amen. He just will. And, and, and he'll do that to us if we do not follow him. It's no respecter of persons here. We can't do what Babylon did and expect to get away with it any more than Babylon could. But it's God who sets up kingdoms and governments, and he sets them up as he wants to, and he takes them down as he wants to. Again, another good thing to remember when you're watching the news. This is the last one. God has an unchanging plan for humanity. No matter what we do, that plan will be accomplished in the way and the time he's already determined. This is God's sovereignty. He has an unchanging plan for humanity, and no matter what we do, that plan will be accomplished the way and the time that he has already determined. So why are we here? To glorify him and be part of the plan. Absolutely. We'll mess the plan up occasionally, which is no sweat to God because he's still going to carry out his plan. 
It's like my children who want to come when they were little and help me wash the car. I will let them help me wash the car. I'm just going to have to rewash it when they're done. Right? God does the same thing with us. But he will carry out his plan in spite of us. All right, we're three minutes over. Anybody got a last word? A brief last word? I feel like I took all the words this evening. We got through Daniel. Imagine that. It's amazing. And the key is when you get to the real hard stuff, you just skim over it and move fast. That's, that's the key. All right, let me pray for us and we'll get out of here. Father, I'm grateful for this evening. I'm grateful for this book. I'm grateful for the rich stories that are in it. I'm grateful for the prophecies that are there that, that rattle our brain and stretch our brain and we still can't truly understand. Uh, I'm grateful, Father, for the fact that you don't give up on us and quit on us and you choose to use us. You don't need us. You can do what you want to, when you want to, and how you want to, but you let us be a part. And Father, I am grateful for your grace and mercy and forgiveness, which I am always in desperate need of every day. If we're apart for those, I'd be helpless. And we would all be helpless. I am grateful, Father, that you will accomplish what you want to accomplish. I'm grateful that in the end, you win. And because you win, we win. And I'm grateful, Father, that we don't have to worry excessively about whether you can handle it. Because over and over and over you tell us you've already handled it. You've already got it. It's already done to you. Time means nothing to you. You already know the outcome. You've already established everything. You just let us be a part of the timeline to teach us and grow us. And So thank you for that, Father. I pray that as we leave here and as we go into the rest of the week, something from this book will stick. Something will prod us, change us, speak in our ears, cause us to respond differently. And I pray that when that happens, Father, we'd give you the glory for it. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.